Let's open with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us and your kindness and your grace and your goodness. We thank you for church history, Lord, and what you've accomplished through church history. And I pray this morning that we could grow and learn from church history because history is your story, Lord. And we thank you for that, that you are Lord of history. And we thank you for the men and women that have preceded us in the faith and the lessons we can learn from them. Open our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're gonna talk about the build up to the Reformation. We'll do that this week and next week. And we're, this morning we're gonna talk specifically about Wycliffe and Huss, John Huss. Sometimes his name is pronounced Hus or Huss. His name means goose. And um, so you may pronounce it different ways. Wycliffe's name is spelled all kinds of different ways because when Wycliffe lived, there was no standard spellings. So sometimes it's spelled W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E. Sometimes it's spelled W-Y-C-L-I-F. Sometimes it's spelled W-Y-C-L-I-F-F. And uh, so standard spellings didn't come till after the Reformation in English and other languages. Wycliffe was born in 1330 and died in 1384. How many of you have heard of John Wycliffe? Okay, most of you heard his name. So we're talking about the 14th century. And life in the 14th century, we're going to describe in just a moment, was pretty much that way up until about 1820 throughout the world. So this is the way life was for hundreds of centuries before the 14th century and for centuries after. According to Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, until the 19th century, life was short, brutish, and nasty. Say that with me. Short, brutish, and nasty. And to, so to get the Reformation, we need to have in the back of our minds something about what life was like uh, in times past. The historian De Simondis called the 14th century a bad time for humanity, and he did not exaggerate. Uh, 30% of the people died from the plague in 1346 when Wycliffe was 16 years old. And then the plague kept coming back over and over and over again. At least 30%, some places, whole towns were wiped out. There's just nothing but ruins left where the towns were. Plague terror was systemic to life. People lived in constant fear of the plague returning, which it did periodically. 25% of the babies died in the first year. Of the 75% that survived, another 25% died by age 15. So only 50% of the people lived beyond age 15. And that was the case up until the 1820s, 1830s. There was no medical or dental care. The medieval barber was the town dentist. And he solved all problems by taking a pair of pliers and pulling teeth with no anesthesia. There was no central heat. Think about that for a minute, in the winter. No electricity. No lighting after dark except candles, which were very expensive, very expensive. So if you were poor, when it got dark, you went to bed. There was nothing else you could do. And you, when, it, when the sun came up, you got up. So in the winter, you spent most of your time sleeping. There were no sewage systems. And this is one of the main causes for the short lifespan. No political freedom as we know of it today. Life was ruled by kings and bishops and popes. There were no newspapers. No newspapers until the 18th century. No radios. No internet. You had no knowledge of the world outside your village. 
unless a foreigner, somebody traveled through and brought you the latest news. Uh, the fastest form of sustained travel was five miles per hour, and that was on a horse, and you could only sustain that for a few hours, then it was slower. A really, really fast person could make 50 miles in a day on a fast horse, but that was very rare. Sailing ships moved at, the, at a walking speed, so they make about 75 miles a day. Walk, they moved at about three miles per hour. Most people had only one or two sets of clothing, and they never washed their clothing because there was very little soap, and people were just really dirty. There was no bathing. Even kings bathed only once a year. Everybody had lice and fleas, even the kings. There was no escape from the lice and fleas because they had no way to kill the lice and fleas. They had no modern things to kill. So you imagine, you know, all your friends have lice in their hair. The, even the, the royalty have lice in their hair. The average peasant lived in a one-room house. The entire family slept on the same straw, flea, and lice-infested bed. The prized animals slept in the house with them. And uh, there was uh, one Roman Catholic church. Anyone that descended was exiled at best or burned at the stake at worst. So if you taught something different than what was approved by the church, you were in really big trouble. There were no Bibles in the vernacular. In other words, there were no Bibles in uh, English or German or French. They all, almost everything that was written was in Latin, and most people couldn't read Latin. The average village priest was illiterate. He couldn't read. Most priest took a concubine. In fact, the priest could buy a license to take a concubine from the bishop, and that was one of the ways the bishops made money. An easy way uh, to keep the priests from entering houses of prostitution, the English church required them to wear uniforms, priestly uniforms. So if they went into the house of prostitution, hold it, you can't come in here, you're a priest. The papacy conducted regular orgies in the Vatican. I mean, big-time orgies. Preaching was almost non-existent. When the Reformation came and preaching was revived, it was, the people loved it because there was virtually no preaching. The only exception, remember the priests were illiterate, so they really didn't have anything to preach about. They were illiterate. They had no newspapers, no way to read. They had no outside information. All they knew were Bible stories they'd been told orally. The only preachers were, were mendicant preachers, Dominicans and Franciscans, who would, when they passed through towns would preach. Mendicant means they lived by begging. So that was the custom in the medieval world with Catholics. The average believer worshiped Mary. They worshiped the saints from an accumulated body of superstition. Christ was a distant, fearful deity. You got into heaven by performing, and no one ever knew if they had done enough. It's official Catholic theology even today that you cannot have assurance of salvation, because if you're saved by works, who's ever done enough works? Who knows if they've done enough works to get into heaven? In 1500, the library at Cambridge had 8,000 volumes. Less than 100 were in English, all in Latin. And only the very wealthy and the very, very, very few who had any kind of college degree could read Latin. The poorest American today lives better than a 16th century king. You picture a really poor person living in a 25-year-old single wide out in a stick somewhere. He has a better life than a king in the 14th century. He has better food. He has better medical care. Everything is better. So it's really helpful for us to look back and understand this. This was the world of Wycliffe, it was the world of Huss, 
It was the world of Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and all, and the Puritans and all the men we'll read about in, or excuse me, we'll study about in the next few weeks. So let's turn to, <coughs> can you ever be thankful that you live today? There, I'm 74. All my heroes died in their mid-50s. Every one of the Reformation heroes died in their mid-50s because people just rarely lived longer than the mid-50s. Barbara Tuckman, one of my favorite historians, wrote of John Wycliffe, quote, seen through the telescope of history, he was the most significant Englishman of his time. Tuckman said this because of Wycliffe's immense influence over future generations, an influence that no one foresaw during Wycliffe's lifetime. And that's usually the way it is. People that are, the people that are alive today that are going to be most influential over the next couple hundred years would surprise us. We would not expect that. There are people we may not even have read about or know about. According to Tuckman, he was the world's first modern man. In other words, he, was, he translated the Bible into English, and by modern, I mean he, out of that translation, that work came the idea of being um, <coughs> beholden to living by your conscience rather than living under the tyranny of what others think. His power over his century was that of a conscience captured by God's Word. Unlike his peers, he denied that men must go through a priest to get to God. Instead, 150 years before the Reformation, he proclaimed the priesthood of every believer and encouraged each man to go directly to God by faith. Now, you may be saying, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's the big deal. In Roman Catholic medieval world, you couldn't just go to God on your own. If you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you couldn't just pray, God, forgive my sins. You had to go to confession and have a priest absolve of your sins. Everything was mediated through a priest, not directly with God. If you wanted to get into contact with God, you went to church, mass, where the priests elevated the host and <coughs> prayed, over, prayed in it over Latin and consecrated it. It became, they believed, the body and blood of Christ. And now when I took the host, I was in contact with God. Everything, and if you wanted to become born again, you had to get baptized. You couldn't just be baptized. You had to be baptized by a priest. So... Everybody was baptized in their infancy. We'll learn about this more when we talk about the Anabaptists. And so it was presumed that everybody was born again because they were baptized, which is ridiculous. But you had to, all that, all that had to be conducted by the priest at the, at the local level. That's how you got to God was through a priest, through the church, through the pope and the papacy. But the Bible says no to all of that. We have free access to God by faith and repentance. And this was a radical idea. This is what Wycliffe let loose. He denied transubstantiation, the doctrine that the bread and wine become the actual body and blood of Christ. He taught the idea, again, radical for his time, that the value of the Lord's Supper depended on the spiritual condition of the communicant, <coughs> excuse me, not the bread. He was the first modern man to revive the doctrine of justification by faith alone. His teaching proceeded from his epoch-shaking conviction that the Bible was the final authority to which men's consciences bow. Christian History Magazine writes, he declared the right of every Christian to know the Bible and that the Bible emphasized the need of every Christian to see the importance of Christ alone as the sufficient way of salvation. Without the aid of pilgrimages, 
without the age of works and without the aid of the Mass. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. A 16th century Bohemian Psalter pictures, has a picture of Wycliffe's influence on the Reformation. Wycliffe is striking a spark. Jan Hus, which we'll talk about in a moment, is kindling it into a coal, and Martin Luther is blowing it into a great flame. And that's a great understanding. The life of Wycliffe, he was born in 1330, we think. We don't really know for sure the date of his birth. The most scholars describe his birth to 1330. We do know that he entered Oxford in 1346, so if he was born in 1330, he was age 16. And that would be very early for college admission today, but it was normal at this point in time. And there he spent 12 years studying to eventually earn a doctorate in theology. Now, you have to understand that one in 10,000 people had a college degree in the 14th century. Maybe one in three or four thousand. It was a very, very small, small fraction of people had any education. Most people were illiterate. He was a man of immense industry and academic ability. He was admired by both his friends and his foes. In 1371, he would have been 31 years old, 41 years old. Oxford acknowledged him as leading theologian. In other words, he was the leading theologian in England because Oxford was the most important university in England. In fact, Oxford was really considered the most elite university in all of Europe. So Wycliffe was really considered Europe's elite theologian at this point in time, kind of like D.A. Carson would be today or somebody of that stature. In 1374, at age 44, the crown awarded him the living of the church at Lutterworth. This meant that the tithes from this church would support him while he was teaching at Oxford. This was a common practice in the medieval world. So Wycliffe would get the money from this church, the tithes, and then he would hire a priest to preach to people and take care of the people, and he would keep what was left over. Wycliffe was a godly man. The avarice and venality of the clergy provoked him. The clergy comprised only 2% of the population, but they controlled 50% of England's wealth. Think about that for a second. They hadn't, and uh, we can't even really relate to that because that so, would be so weird by our modern standards. In an attempt to counter clerical abuse, Wycliffe taught that the state had the right and obligation to discipline the church, even confiscating its wealth if necessary. This endeared him to one of the heads of state, a man named John of Gaunt, who was the third son of the king, who coveted the treasures of the national church. Wycliffe continued to teach theology at Oxford until 1378, when he was about 48. In the medieval world, he's getting to become an old man. He, uh, he retired to the parish of Lutterworth, from which he was getting his living, to preach and write, and his last years were the most productive years of his life. With the help of friends at Oxford, he translated the Bible, all 750,000 words, from Latin into English, which was an immense undertaking. Now, the average paperback in the bookstore back there is about 50,000 words. So 750,000 words is 15 paperbacks back in the bookstore. That's how big the Bible is. It's a big book. His unique and revolutionary conviction that the average Englishman would be able to read the Bible in the common language threatened the power of the English state church. It meant that the Bible, rather than the counsel of a state-controlled priest, 
would mediate Christ to the believer's conscience. Therefore, his translation and the ideas that it set loose, that the, also the idea that the common man would be able to read it, threatened the glue that held medieval civilization together. That glue was the church's power to control people by binding men's consciences. It was all about control, okay? The church and the state controlled people. They didn't want the people to have the Bible because if they had the Bible, they wouldn't be in control of what people thought. So if the church would interpret the Bible and teach, tell the people what the Bible meant, they could control them that way, but they didn't want you reading it yourself. And as we look at the left politically today, it's all about control, isn't it? So we should be very much understanding that this is a sin that perpetuates itself over and over and over throughout history. Wycliffe also trained and sent out preachers, encouraging them to preach expository sermons from hand-copied Bible fragments. The people called them the poor priests. Some were well-educated disciples of, of Wycliffe from Oxford. Others, however, were unlettered, but sincere men dedicated to the dissemination of the gospel. Now, maybe there's no printing press. So if these poor preachers have a, a piece of the Bible to preach from, they've written it out by longhand on a scrap of paper, probably in English, and maybe in Latin if they could read Latin. And so they've just got fragments of the Bible is all they have. Because it took a year to manufacture a Bible with a monk writing it out longhand on pen and paper and illustrating it and everything. Remember, 750,000 words, pen and ink, very slow. So Bibles are very, very expensive, and very few people had them. Most churches had a Bible in Latin, and it was chained to the pulpit because the Bible was so valuable that if somebody could steal it and sell it, they could make a lot of money because there were so, so few books. In fact, if you had a library of 100 books, you were considered very, very wealthy in the medieval world. It was a way to show off your wealth. These poor priests were called lollards, which means mumblers. God crowned their efforts with great success. About this time, Wycliffe lost favor with John of Gaunt. Remember, he's the guy supporting him as the third son of the king. Without Gaunt's protection, Wycliffe was exposed to the wrath of the established clergy. But before he could be arrested, tried and burnt at the stake, very graciously, God was kind to him. He died of a stroke while saying Mass in 1384. He was about 50, in his mid-50s. If he was born in 1330, he was 54, but again, we don't know the exact date of his birth. Lollardy, however, continued until crushed by bitter persecution from the church and the state, 35 years after Wycliffe's death in the 1420s. The state hung most of the Lollard leaders or burnt them at the stake. A burning at the stake was a horrible way to go. Not as bad as crucifixion, but really bad. Forced underground, the survivors continued in small groupings for several generations. When the Reformation shook England in the 1530s, the Lollards came out of hiding and joined the Reformation. Later, when the church realized that a grave mistake they had made with Wycliffe, they dug up his bones and burned them about 30 years after his death. Wycliffe's title is the morning star of the Reformation. He was the beginning of the Reformation. He's also called the evening star of medieval theology because he was the last. When Wycliffe came, the whole medieval world theologically began slowly to crumble, although nobody saw that at the time. We may walk in 
Wycliffe's footsteps, may we have the courage to imitate him today, a brave man. Now, that takes us to John Huss is our next subject. And these two men are very closely connected because of Wycliffe's writing. So let's, let's think about Huss. Huss died in 1415. Huss was, or Hus, no, I'm going to call him Huss, was from Bohemia, which is modern-day Czechoslovakia. Prague, Czechoslovakia is where he lived. The, when Wycliffe was preaching, the Queen of England was Bohemian. And after Wycliffe died, the King of England died. His queen, who's Bohemian, is a widow. And so she goes back to Bohemia, to Prague. But she takes a whole bunch of John Wycliffe's writings with her. And uh, quite a portfolio of his writings because she was a big fan of Wycliffe. And that exposure had great uh, consequences for Huss, but it had positive consequences for the Western world. So Huss was a priest in Prague, and he obtained Wycliffe's writings from the queen and began to read and study them. And he was deeply moved. This is about 1400, maybe 15 years after Wycliffe's death. He's, brief, he's deeply moved by Wycliffe's writings and it has grave consequences for him. 31 years after Wycliffe's death, on a warm summer day in, in 1415, Huss stepped from the wooden platform in the Cathedral of Constance. Constance is in modern-day Switzerland. It's a resort area. Thousands of anxious eyes followed him. It was the day of his condemnation and his execution. Seven bishops stepped forward and removed his filthy, lice-infested prison garments. They clothed him in clean, priestly garments. Then they placed a chalice of wine in his right hand. Then to symbolize his degradation from the priesthood, <clears throat> they stripped the priest's robes from his back, took the chalice from his hand. They chained his gaunt, withered hands behind his back and led him away to receive the dreaded punishment of the day being burnt at the stake. The authorities surrounded Huss with armed soldiers because they were nervous. Huss was popular with the vast crowds that thronged the road on the way to his execution. His simple sermons preached in the dialect, the common dialect that the people spoke, not the Latin that the priest spoke in, had stirred the peasants' hearts. They knew holiness and purity when they saw it. Even his most strident enemies could not find blemish in his moral character. The emperor had called the great ecumenical council of Constance to resolve some, some uh, doctrinal confusion, and Jan Hus, Hus, under a promise of safe conduct, had been invited to come and explain his controversial views about the teaching of John Wycliffe. Now, this council was called, there have been very few church councils like this. I don't think there have been one for several hundred years. And... This church council was called because there were three popes, and they were all fighting with each other. And nobody could decide who the real pope was. There was a pope in Rome, there was a pope in France, and there was, I can't remember where the other pope was. So the emperor, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, calls this, this council to decide this issue. And they say to Wycliffe, we want you to come and explain what you're teaching about Jan Hus because all of Bohemia was stirred up about this and we're anxious about it, and we will give you, promise you a right of safe conduct. In other words, you come, we promise you we won't 
persecute you or arrest you and will allow you to go home safe, no matter what you, what you tell us. And of course, the church broke their promise. After he arrived, they broke their promises. Ten months prior to this, Haas had confidently left Prague for Constance. His reputation for spiritual power, holiness, and eloquence preceded him. As he traveled south towards Constance, crowds lined the road cheering him. He was wined and dined by the authorities, and every town that he came to, they asked him to stop and preach a sermon in, the, in their local uh, uh, cathedral. He stressed moral, spiritual, and doctrinal renewal and protested the corruption of the clergy. The people were famished for the hearing of the simplicity and power of God's Word. They lined, they listened enthusiastically. But shortly after his arrival in Constance, as I just mentioned, the emperor maliciously broke his promise. Huss was thrown in prison. Now he limped towards his execution. His broken body emaciated by nine months in a rat-infested, subterranean, medieval cell chained by night to its stony walls. Toothaches, gallstones, fevers, and bouts of vomiting had persistently tormented him. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to stop here for just a second and think about suffering. There's this view of the Christian life that it's always going to be easy, that if God loves me, I'll have health, wealth, and prosperity. But that's not how it's worked out for our forefathers in the faith. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's not how it worked out for Christ, did it? It didn't. He suffered. And Paul, Judy and I were just talked in a car driving down this morning about Paul's statement that he's sharing in the sufferings of Christ, which means he's being persecuted for the gospel, and he's sharing in Christ's sufferings. And all Christians are asked at some level to share in Christ's sufferings. It just may be rejection by friends in your case, or family members, or it could be something worse than that. In Huss's case, it's, it's this imprisonment, it's suffering for nine months in, in this horrible cell, and he was beaten, and it was really nasty. And remember, there's no medical care, so all these physical problems he's having, there's no, there's no cure, there's no painkillers. Paul's words encouraged him, for our light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. This is what kept Huss going. And although he had tried to divert his mind from the horrors of the death that awaited him, he had often failed. Hadn't he just written a friend that God would either douse the flames or God would fortify him with courage to endure the fiery ordeal? Put not your trust in princes, he thought from the Psalms, in man in whom there is no salvation. He would trust in God, not himself. How ironic that he should die for the truths recovered by Master Wycliffe. He remembered his first exposure to Wycliffe's writings. He was finishing his bachelor's degree at the University of Prague. At first, Wycliffe's ideas offended him, though he's really too radical, he thought. So different from the traditions the authorities had taught him. But when he went to the Bible, his arguments against Wycliffe's reasonings dissolved. It was revolutionary material. For Dr. Wycliffe taught liberty of conscience and the priesthood of every believer, the teachings that flow from the recovery of Scripture truth. See, the problem is, 
priesthood of every believer means we don't need the church. We don't need the pope. We don't need the seven sacraments, which medieval people felt that's the only way they could get to heaven was through the sacraments. We don't need the local priest. We're, we're free. We just need Christ. And this, but the need of all those things was what held the medieval world together. He knew, Huss knew intuitively how costly Wycliffe's ideas would be. He remembered his happy years at the University of Prague when he and his friends compared Wycliffe to the Bible. They met to discuss God's radical truths and pray. The University of Prague was on the cutting edge at that time, and there was a sense of great exhilaration to be in the middle of all this radical change. And although Wycliffe, excuse me, Huss, unlike Wycliffe, was an average student, he earned his bachelor's degree and then later his master's degree. But he most importantly remembered the joy of his ordination and his first experience of preaching with God's power. The preaching gift that God gave him made way for him. And in 1402, at the age of 30, about, again, this is about 18 years after Wycliffe has died, Bethlehem Chapel, the great Prague preaching station, called him to be its pastor. And there he preached, preached twice each day. Unusual grace attended his ministry. Within a short time, the building was so full that the hungry crowds flowed out into the street. Now, Bethlehem Chapel is still there to this day. In fact, I have a nephew that lives in Prague, and my uh, brother-in-law died uh, in May, his father, and so he came back for the funeral. And at the funeral, I asked Jerry, I said, he's not a Christian. He's an agnostic. He's rejected the faith years ago. But I said to him, have you ever, do you know about Bethlehem Chapel in Prague? He said, oh, yeah. It's right in the downtown area. In fact, he said there's this huge statue of this guy in front of it, Huss, I think was his name. He said that kind of like, why would they have this statue of this strange guy in front of the church there? I said, yeah, Jan, Jan Hus, Huss preached at that church, and I'm glad to hear it's still there. Yeah, he said it's still there. It's, it's kind of a, an important place in the downtown area. And now I lost my place in my notes. Give me a sec here. So at least Wycliffe thought he had enjoyed 12 good years of Bethlehem Chapel. They were the best years of his life. With joy, he watched God use his preaching to change the hearts and lives of thousands. The queen even asked him to be her confessor. The city of Prague, was, as well as the nation of Bohemia, had begun to turn to Christ. It was really a revival taking place in Prague. Inspired by the radical teachings of Wycliffe, Huss preached God's word. He understood the issues. His growing fame and popularity threatened the papacy's control of Bohemia. In fact, the Pope had threatened to put the city under an interdict. Do any of you know what an interdict is today? Anybody heard that term before? A few of you have. The interdict, my wife does, has heard it because she's been married to me. The interdict, now this, is, this is shows you the control issue, okay? Under the interdict, interdict, if the Pope was upset with this nation or a city, he would put it under the interdict, which meant everybody that dies in that city, while it's under the interdict, automatically goes to hell. And so it was a way the Pope had to control. And most people believed that the Pope had that power, so they were terrified of the interdict. Well, things have gotten so out of hand in Prague that the Pope has put the city under the interdict. So to protect Prague, 
Therefore, Huss had retreated into the country, and now here he was. And he always said, it's better to die well than to live badly. Say that with me. It's better to die well than to live badly. He would need God's grace to die well today. At the place of execution, he knelt down and spread out his hands and prayed aloud. The executioner undressed Huss and tied his hands behind his back with ropes. His neck was burnt, was bound with a chain to a stake around which wood and straw was piled up to his neck. It is said that when he was about to expire, he cried out. In those days, you know, the, you really hoped that whoever was lighting the fire was really good at it, because if they weren't, the fire would start, then it would go out, then the fire would start, then it would go out, if the wood was green, and that was a long, slow agony of dying. So I don't know in Huss's case whether that was the case or not, whether the fire burned quickly and he died quickly. But it was said that when he was about to expire, he cried out, Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on us, meaning Bohemia. Huss's ashes were later thrown into the Rhine River so that as a means of preventing his veneration by his enemies. Now, there's a great postscript to this story of Wycliffe and Huss. It has a long history that goes forward into the future. When the news of Huss's betrayal and burning reached Prague, which probably was three or four weeks later, civil unrest erupted. Having tasted the truth of Huss's preaching, there was no turning back. The Pope raised an army of 150,000 and invaded Bohemia. Now, if you want to get some really interesting reading, read about a guy named Blind Jan Ziska, Z-I-Z-K-A, because he was a follower of Huss. He's one of my heroes, and you've never heard of him, and I had never heard of him either until recently. But Blind Jan Ziska was a military genius. He raised an army of about 10,000 Hussites, and they took on the Roman army of 150,000 and defeated them 10 times over a period of t about 10 years, till the, till the Pope and his forces gave up. And so Bohemia became, basically became Protestant. And uh, blind Janziski, he was blind in one eye, he couldn't see, only see out of one eye. Uh, several people have said he was one of the greatest military geniuses in history. The problem is it was so far back and so little was written down, we don't know that much about him. But eventually he lost his other eyes, so and now he's leading his army completely blind. And they're still defeating the Catholics and the armies invading them from Germany and Austria and, and the other places from the West. Huss's followers became the first Protestants in Europe. Now, the Reformation officially began in 1517. Huss died in 1415, 102 years before the Reformation. But the war between the Catholics and the Hussites went on for another 20 or 30 years after uh, Huss's death, and what emerged was a Bohemian Protestant church, uh, which eventually, if we, when the Reformation began, they joined the Reformation, and later on, the Bohemian Protestant church became the Moravians. Have you heard of the Moravians, anybody? Okay, when the Great Awakening occurred in 1730s, when it began, there was a man named uh, Count von Zinzendorf who lived in Bohemia, and he gave shelter to a bunch of Moravians who were the followers of Huss. Now, we've gone forward several centuries. And uh, the, actually, the, the Great Awakening began on Count von Zinzendorf's estate called Herrenhut, which means the Lord's Place in English. 
It was his estates. He gave shelter to these Bohemians. I think there were seven or 800 of them. They built a little village there called Heron Hut, and they entered into prayer, and God's Spirit fell on them in a remarkable way. It was the beginning of the Great Awakening, and later they were responsible for the conversion of the Wesley brothers, and in fact, when John Wesley was converted, he went to Heron Hut and spent a couple months learning from the Moravians. All this is the fruit of Jan Hus, Wycliffe to Hus, to the Protestant Bohemians, the Reformation, the Moravians. The Moravians came to the United States. They settled, for example, Nazareth, Pennsylvania was settled by the Moravians. Lots of towns on the East Coast were settled by Moravian missionaries in the period 1675 to 1725. The Moravians were incredible, excuse me, 1725 to 1750. The Moravians were incredible missionaries. So there is our history. It's amazing history. History is his story. Would you say that with me? History is his story. So when Barbara Tuckman said, Wycliffe was at the time, this, nobody saw this, but at the time, he was the most important Englishman of his era of the 14th century. It was because of the ideas that he let loose, that went off in different places and had incredible uh, and very positive influences. Ideas have incredible power. And we're, we are all here today because we bought into certain ideas. We're Christians. We have a worldview. Worldviews have incredible significance. Wycliffe was the beginning of a whole new worldview in the Western world, which now permeates most of the Western world because of the Protestant Reformation. So next week, we're going to turn and we're going to look at the, 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 the invention of the printing press. Shortly after the Hussites conquered the Catholics, the printing press was invented. We're going to look at Erasmus, and we're going to look at one of my all-time heroes, Savonarola. How many of you have heard of Savonarola? Oh, good. It's a significant, significant number. Okay. So let's pray, and it's 1040. Let's ask God's blessing on the rest of today. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and kindness. Thank you for these men that preceded us. Thank you for using them, Lord. Th thank you for the legacy that they've left us. And God, we pray for grace to take the same kinds of stands, even at the cost of our life, if necessary, to bring praise and honor and glory to you. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.